0: I'll be reading from Jeremiah chapter two, verses one through 19. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem and say, thus says Yahweh, I remember concerning you, the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty evil came upon them declares yahweh hear the word of yahweh o house of jacob and all the families of the house of israel thus says yahweh what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty and they did not say where is yahweh who brought us out of the land of egypt who led us through the wilderness through the land of deserts and of pits through a land of drought and of deep darkness Through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt. And I brought you to the faithful land to eat its fruit and its good things. But you came and defiled my land. And my inheritance you made an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is Yahweh? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons, sons, I will contend for cross the coastlands of Kittim and see and send to Kadar and observe closely and see if there's there's ever been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled heavens at this and shudder be very desolate declares Yahweh, for my people have committed two evils; they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave, or is he a homeborn servant? Why has he become prey? The young lions have roared at him. They have roared loudly, and they have made his land a waste. His cities have been destroyed without inhabitant. Also, the men of Memphis and Papines have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not done this to yourself by forsaking Yahweh, your God, when he led you in the way? But now, what are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Well, what are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your own wickedness will correct you and your apostasies will reprove you. Know, therefore, and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God and the dread of me is not in you, declares Yahweh, God of hosts. Heavenly Father, help these words sink into our hearts and help us not to stray from you. May we not forsake you today, tomorrow, or the rest. Help us be faithful to hold you up dear in our lives. Not put emptiness in front of us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and his perfect example. Help us to be filled by your Spirit and walk in your way. Be with Tom as he speaks and shares your word with us and prick our hearts in Jesus' holy name.
1: Amen. Good morning. I want to begin this morning by pointing out a, a very important, very simple principle that uh, that will make a world of difference when it comes to what you get out of our study of Jeremiah and really what you get out of your study of the Old Testament. Uh, here's the principle. God's dealings with his covenant people in the Old Testament tell us a whole lot about how he deals with his church and with individual Christians today. Let me say that again. God's dealings with his covenant people in the Old Testament tell us a whole lot about how God deals with his church and with individual Christians today. Now, there are people who will be attending this morning and who will be attending in the future that that didn't hear that, so you might tell them if they come in late, you might point that out to them. This does not mean that every Israelite was uh, eternally saved. In every generation of mankind, those who receive eternal life, which is everlasting relationship with God, are those who believe the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I'll say that again too. In every generation of mankind, those who are justified by faith, those who receive eternal life, which is eternal relationship with God, Are those who believe the promises of God that are fulfilled only in Christ. That was true of Abraham in Genesis 15 when God said to him that his faith had justified him. He believed a promise that's fulfilled in Christ. And that, again, it doesn't mean they were all saved, but here's what, here's what is absolutely true about the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament. God called them out of from among all the peoples of the earth to be His covenant people. He created them as a nation. And the way He dealt with them under the old temporary covenant has many, many parallels with how He deals with us who belong to Him under the new eternal covenant. And so we need to be paying very close attention when he talks to his people in the Old Testament. God will declare over and over through Jeremiah that his judgments against Israel and Judah have a very different endpoint than his judgments against the pagan nations that persist in rejecting him. And God's judgments, as he deals with us as his church, have a very different endpoint than than his judgments that will apply to those who reject Christ to the end but they are real and they are painful and we need to pay attention to them because they have an exceedingly important purpose in chapter 2 of Jeremiah God lays out his case against his people his indictment is explicitly about Israel but and, and Israel, of course, is the, the ten northern tribes descended from uh, Jacob. It's not directed specifically against Judah. But it's fascinating that, that in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says that Jeremiah was to declare these words in the ears of Judah. Now why would he, why would God present an indictment against Israel, the northern tribes, in the ears of Judah, the southern tribes? Because he was about to judge them the way he had judged Israel. Because they were guilty of the sins of Israel. Okay? In the very next chapter, God will extend his indictment against faithless Israel to her, quote, her treacherous sister Judah. The sin of the first was the sin of the second, and the judgments against the first were the, were the judgments against the second. It was just different people that God used to Execute those judgments. In verse nine of chapter two, God presents the real heart of his, his indictment. He says, therefore I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons I will contend. He's, he's declaring that he's going to make his case against his own people. The word contend is a, is a legal word. It's used, was used often in Courts of Law in the Ancient Near East. Some have said that uh, this book and this passage is uh, in effect about God taking His people to divorce court. And I I agree with that characterization, but I think it would be easy to let that water down the force of what's going on here. Because nobody dies in divorce court. At least not usually. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, life, real life, is defined as relationship with God. So if God ever permanently divorced those whom He has identified as His own people, that would, that would send us all right back into the status of being eternally condemned. Because what is condemnation in the Bible? What is hell as the Bible defines it? 2 Thessalonians 1-9. It is Eternal separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. It's a break of relationship that lasts forever. Of course, those who do not know Christ never come into relationship with God, and those who do never lose relationship with God. The break between man and God occurred in the garden and has persisted ever since. Now, make no mistake, beloved, the accusations that God brings against His people in this opening indictment in the book of Jeremiah are accusations of crimes that are worthy of eternal condemnation. And make no mistake about this either. The crimes that you and I commit against God, you and I who belong to Jesus, that we commit against God every single day of our lives, give God cause to be done with us and to utterly condemn us. And if you don't believe that statement, then I would urge you to go back to the Scriptures and examine the holiness of God and the wretchedness of your sin. Because if you understand those two things, it will come as no surprise to you that you deserve hell every day. The only reason... Utter and everlasting destruction was not the outcome of Israel's rebellion against God and the only reason utter and everlasting destruction is not the outcome of my many acts of rebellion against God now is grace. The only reason that our rebellious acts and thoughts and words against Almighty God do not result in our eternal condemnation is Christ. It is only because of the One who in this book is called the righteous branch of David. The One who is foretold in this book. It's only because of Jesus that our sins do not condemn us because we are condemned by every rightful judgment of God. Now, God begins his indictment here by first presenting a a positive, and that is he talks about how blessed Israel was before they apostatized. In verses 1 through 3, he speaks of his incomparable faithfulness toward his people and of their love response to him. He says, now the word of the Lord, Jeremiah says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, thus says Yahweh, I remember concerning the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. The word devotion in verse 2, surprisingly, is the Hebrew word hesed. It's the word that means steadfast covenant love. And it is very, very, very rarely applied to people in their response to God. It is almost always referring to God and His love toward His covenant people. He's the one who has steadfast covenant love. But in this very rare instance, God says of Israel, I remember concerning you the steadfast covenant love toward Me that you had in your youth. The love of your betrothals like the love of a bride who's waiting for her wedding day, the affection that she has for her husband. God had delivered Israel from harsh bondage in Egypt through mighty miracles. He had fed fed them with manna from heaven and water from rocks as they they lived in the midst of of a barren desert He had not let the shoes on their feet wear out for 40 years. And they weren't great shoes. He had proven his steadfast covenant love for them over and over and over. And for a time, they loved him back. They followed after God in the wilderness through a land not sown. And it had been exceedingly well with them. Of course, only a very gracious God would characterize Israel's obedience during those 40 years of wilderness wanderings the way God does through Jeremiah here. Because if you read Exodus and Numbers, (laughs) you know that Israel grumbled and complained against God the whole time. But as a nation, they followed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Where he went, they went. They depended on Him utterly for protection and provision. And He was their only protection and their only provision for 40 years. In the final chapters of the book of Exodus during the time that the tabernacle was being constructed, it's the one and only time in the entire history of Israel in the the Old Testament where God says that they did just as He commanded. Over and over, He says they did just as He commanded. It was a marvelous time in their history. And they enjoyed an unrivaled place among all the nations of the earth as God's own treasured possession. Jeremiah 2, verse 3 says, Israel was holy to Yahweh, the first of his harvest. That's an amazing statement. The first of his harvest. God had said when he called Jeremiah to Minister on his behalf in chapter one, he said, I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. And now he's saying, Israel was the first part of my harvest from mankind. When Israel actually followed the one true God, they had the God of armies as their protector, as their fortress, as, as their armies. <laughs> Verse 3 says that all who ate of the first fruits of God's harvest became guilty and evil came upon them by the hand of Yahweh himself. That means everyone who tried to take about a bite out of God's harvest, God's people, He bit them back. Big time. During their wilderness wanderings, none of Israel's enemies was allowed to harm them. And friends, they were surrounded by enemies. They were wandering through a desert surrounded by all kinds of enemies. But nobody harmed them. And that's because God's provision and protection follow after those who follow after God. God's provision and protection follow after those who follow after God. That you can take to the bank. I want you to please notice how deeply personal all of this was to God. Just as it once was to Israel. Israel, he said, was holy to Yahweh, the first of his harvest from all mankind. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, he said that they were his treasured possession. In the Psalms, he says they are his inheritance. They were to be a kingdom of priests through whom he would mediate the true knowledge of the one true God to all the nations of the earth. Nations that had begun with that knowledge, but had long ago abandoned God. And it was love for God that had so, who had so marvelously loved them, that propelled Israel to follow him through a desert wilderness. God called it the steadfast covenant love of their youth, the love of their betrothals. It was a relationship with love that propelled covenant devotion in both directions. God's love for his people and in response, his people's love for him. First John 4, we love because God first loved us. And beloved, God is not the one who changed. In verses 4 through 8, God through Jeremiah exposes the root of Israel's apostasy, of their turning away from God. And in a word, the root of their apostasy is thanklessness. Listen again to verses 4 and 5. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? The word emptiness... Verse 5 is the word that's often translated vanity in the Old Testament. It's a great word. At its core, it it basically means mist, vapor. It speaks of something ephemeral, like a, a tiny puff of wind or a breath, a fleeting vapor that has no substance that's gone as soon as it appears. And God says those who go after emptiness themselves become as empty as that which they pursue. Instead of fulfillment, that's a great word, fulfillment, it's redundant. Instead of fulfillment, what they get is emptiness. They themselves become filled with nothing. It was steadfast covenant love that had long before propelled Israel's devotion to God in the wilderness. But what had propelled them in Jeremiah's day to turn their affections away from the one who had been the source of all well-being to them? It was thanklessness. In verses 6 and 7, God says, They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelled? And then God says, I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. But you came and defiled My land, and My inheritance you made an abomination." In verse 8, God applies that same indictment to four groups of people in Israel and in Judah. First, the priests. Second, those who handled the law. Third, the rulers. And fourth, the prophets. Three of those are fairly easy to identify, but the phrase, those who handled the law, is interesting. That refers to the scribes and the rabbis who... Who guarded the law, who preserved it, who copied it, and who taught it to the people. See, it applies to those who should have known Yahweh the most truly and the most intimately, because they were the caretakers of his revelation to all mankind. <laughs> and they but but those very people did not say, Let us turn to our Redeemer and Protector who has always watched over us faithfully. They and the rulers and the prophets all turned away to follow after things that do not profit. Empty things. Why? Because they didn't recount and remember the things that God had done for them. They were thankless. There was no gratitude. If you trace the turning away from the one true God back to its root, you will always find ingratitude. And if you trace joy in God and faithfulness to God back to its root, you will always find gratitude, thankfulness. People whose lives are filled with thanks to God for His character and for His amazing grace... Are filled with joy in God. Those are not the people who walk away from God to go after things that cannot satisfy. Because they are full. Only ungrateful hearts turn away from God. Now how about, how about us? How about you and me? To whom God has spoken so perfectly and so clearly, not merely through prophets, but through His Son who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and who upholds all things by the word of His power. How about us? What is it that causes us to turn our affections and our attention away from our devotion to the one and only source of all that is good to things that are empty and that cannot profit? It's thanklessness. What makes Christians joyless? What makes people who have been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ question the goodness of God toward them so grievously that they fall into despair? Thanklessness. See, it's not the absence of well-being from the hand of God. If you belong to God, that never happens. It's never the absence of well-being from the hand of God. God has lavished upon every child of His the unfathomable riches of Christ. Read chapters one through three of the book of Ephesians, if you want to know what He gave you. That nobody can take away from you. And, and if you go look at those riches, you'll find that none of them have anything to do with your circumstance here during this brief time on earth. And yet they are, it is a treasure trove With no comparison to anything else. It is well-being of the highest order and it is eternal. What makes Christians joyless and despairing is never the absence of well-being from the hand of God. It is the denial of the well-being that we have received from the hand of God. It is thanklessness. And that's why thankfulness is so very vitally important in the life of every believer and in the life of his church. And we'll come back to that shortly. The root of Israel's apostasy is thanklessness and the fruit of Israel's apostasy is adultery, infidelity. And it is that fruit that God lays out in verses 9-13 through as the condemning evidence in his ironclad case against his own people. God says, Therefore I will contend with you and with your sons sons I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see and send to Kedar and observe closely. He's talking about long distance from east to west. And see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Even the pagan nations that surrounded Israel and Judah were at least consistent. The gods that they worshipped were no gods at all. They were the fabrication of their own hands. But they didn't change gods. (laughs) They may have been fools, but they were steadfast fools. They didn't bounce around from one set of gods to another. Israel, on the other hand, seemed to know nothing of fidelity, of steadfastness, of faithfulness to the God who had proven Himself over and over through many miraculous interventions in their history. Tangible, visible, real world interventions. And just as with many of the other indictments found in the Old Testament, God in this passage calls a lesser part of His creation to bear witness against the pinnacle of His creation. For their high-handed sin against Him, He says, Be appalled, O heavens, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this and shudder and be very desolate, declares Yahweh. The irony here is pure genius. God's people, the pinnacle of the pinnacle of His creation, had turned away from Him to worship and serve the works of their own hands that they made out of things God made. And they created them in the image of other things that God made. And so God calls the things that He made to bear witness to their boundless foolishness. It's as if God is saying, okay, so you're going to worship the objects in the heavens? As if they're your gods. They know who I am. They proclaim my glory. Psalm 19, first two verses. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge of what? Of the living God. Of their creator. God said to Israel, if you won't praise Me, the rocks and the stones and the trees will praise Me. Here in Jeremiah, God calls the heavens to witness against faithless Israel. In verse 13, He he presents a very powerful metaphor for His people's treachery and foolish infidelity. He says, for My people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters to hew, to carve out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. In biblical times in Palestine, the roadways that joined one town or region to another were charted out based on the location of springs and wells and rivers. So that when someone set out Usually on foot to go from one place to another, they didn't have to die of thirst on the way. If you lived on a piece of land that didn't have a spring or a well or a a creek or a river as a water source, your only recourse was to dig out a cistern, a hole in the ground to catch rainwater. But one of the painful ironies about cisterns is that in the summer, as the ground heats up, and the need for water becomes more and more critical, cracks form in that hole that you dug in the ground, and the water goes out. And no matter how hard you try to seal them, the cracks come back because the ground shifts. I guess the foundations there are like the foundations in Dallas. And it becomes almost impossible to keep rainwater in a hole in the ground when you most need it. Here in God's formal indictment, in this case against his people, he draws a a contrast that's supposed to be very stark. A contrast between the pathetic, leaking cisterns that men dig for themselves with their own hands and the fountain of living waters. The boundless, endless fountain of life. This passage always makes me think of John chapter 4 when Jesus very Very in a very calculated manner, worked it out so that he could have a one-on-one interaction with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. He sent 12 men to get provisions for 13 men for two days. Think about that for a minute. So he could be alone with this woman. That well was a far better source of water than the cisterns that God is talking about here. But Jesus reminded the woman at the well that anyone who drank water from that well would have to keep coming back day after day. And it was high noon and he was talking to her. It was really hot. But whoever drinks from the wellspring, the overflowing fountain of living waters, never thirsts again. That's what he told her. The contrast that God presents in Jeremiah 2 is between overflowing abundance and abject poverty. See, when we turn our affections and our attention away from God and turn instead to things that He has made, including people, we don't get something less good than we had before. We go from having everything to having nothing. An empty hole in the ground. And then somehow we... Tell ourselves that things are better than they were. Beloved, this is not God's accusation against the pagan nations. This is His accusation against His covenant people who had beheld and known and experienced the goodness of their God and then turned away from Him to follow after mist. It's significant that this indictment is presented in the opening chapters of Jeremiah's writings, which were most likely during the reign of King Josiah. He was one of the the very rare good kings in Judah. Second Kings 23, 25 says of Josiah, before him there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Does that sound familiar? What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy 6? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with soul, all your soul and with all your might. He says Josiah did that. And it says, Nor did any arise like him after him. But listen to the very next verses in that same passage in 2 Kings 23. However, Yahweh did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather. And Yahweh said, I will remove Judah also from My sight, as I have removed Israel. That means He's going to send them away into exile. And I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said My name shall be there. The place He created to dwell in the midst of His covenant people, He would destroy it. God knew that the heart of Josiah was not the heart of those over whom he reigned. People generally get the rulers they deserve. Judah did not deserve Josiah. They deserved his wretched grandfather, Manasseh. The king who made the apostasy of any king before him look like child's play. One of the most amazing things in the whole Bible is the fact that at the end of his life, Manasseh turned to God and God covered him with his grace. But God didn't forget how the heart of Manasseh during his rebellion found its way into the hearts of the people. It really goes the other way. It goes from the ground up, not from the top down. We get the rulers we deserve. Verses 14 to 19, God reveals the cost of Israel's apostasy. Blessing turned to curse. Having presented the heart of his case against Israel, the root of their apostasy, and the very essence of their apostasy, which was spiritual adultery, God now proceeds to set before Judah the cost that Israel had paid for turning away from God to look elsewhere for well-being. He does this so that Judah might be warned and not repeat the same thing, not stay on the course they were already on. Verse 14, God says, "Is Israel a slave or is he a homeborn servant? Why has he become a prey? The young lions have roared at him, they have roared loudly, and they have made his land a waste. His cities have been destroyed without inhabitant. Also, the men of Memphis and Topanus have shaved the crown of your head. Memphis and Topanas were important cities in Egypt. In the time leading up to Josiah's reign in Judah, the power of the Assyrian, the massive Assyrian kingdom had, had declined. They were fighting so many enemies that they just started to be whittled away. And the ancient kingdom of Egypt had seen an opportunity and they had stepped in to take advantage. As the Israelites... Who remained in Palestine after most had been taken away into captivity to Assyria. As those Israelites who remained in, a, in Palestine tried to deal with that whole situation, what they did is they they formed, they bounced around in their alliances. They went to Egypt to protect them against Assyria, and then as Assyria started the way, in, they went to Assyria to protect them against Egypt. But you know where they didn't go? They didn't go to the one and only protector that they had ever actually had. Later in Jeremiah, we see that Judah follows Israel's example. Chapter 43, they look to Egypt for protection instead of going to the one who had only ever been worthy of their fear and their trust. Having posed the piercing question, why has Israel become a prey to all these other nations? God then answers the question himself. And he uses a word play in verses 17 and 18 on the word road. Derek should know that Hebrew word because the Hebrew word for road or way is Derek. He says, have you not done this to yourself by forsaking Yahweh your God when he led you in the way? But now what are you doing on the way, same word, to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? What are you doing on the way to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Israel had sought security by turning to pagan nations that knew nothing of Yahweh instead of by turning to Yahweh. But those very nations to which they turned, turned on them and laid waste to their cities and carried their people away into captivity. So now God issues a divine, I told you so. God gets to do that. He declares in no uncertain terms that the terrible destruction that Israel had suffered at the hands of their enemies was their doing, their own doing. They had done this this to themselves by forsaking Yahweh, their God. He had led them in the way, in the path of miraculous blessedness and fullness. But they had chosen a different way. A different road. He says to him, what are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? What are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? The Nile and the Euphrates were the lifelines for Egypt and Assyria, but they were no, they were no rival to the fountain of living waters. Those rivers could not provide relationship with the eternal God. And that's what real life is. So the only thirst that that absolutely, compellingly must be satisfied is the thirst after God. Israel's dependence on those other waters, their pursuit of those other waters turned out to be of no greater benefit to them than if they had dug holes in the ground that leaked. But they had a far, far bigger problem than Egypt or Assyria. Because the only one who had ever been worthy of their fear or of their trust was Yahweh. In verse 19, God, God brings them around to the true cost of their apostasy. Verse 19 is critical. Here's the true cost of their apostasy. Your own wickedness will correct you and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake Yahweh, your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares Yahweh of hosts. Now, this is an amazing phrase at the end here. It's the same phrase that Jeremiah used when he said to God that that he wasn't sure God could use him. It It is Yahweh, Adonai, Sabaoth. It is the sovereign is Yahweh the sovereign God of armies. Yahweh the, I am the sovereign God of armies. He says the dread of me is not in you. Israel's problem was never Assyria or Egypt and Judah's problem was never Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. Those nations and those kings were nothing but instruments in the hands of the only one that God's people ever had caused to fear or that anyone ever has caused to fear. The real cost of Israel's apostasy was that they turned their Redeemer into their enemy. And yet the dread of Him was not in them. And the cost of that miscalculation turned out to be far greater than they had ever imagined. It always is. They looked everywhere for security and provision except to the one who had always been the only security and provision they had ever had. And what they threw away was all of both because all true security and all true provision comes from only one place. James 1.17 says, every good thing, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation Or shadow of turning. What do you get when you turn away from the one and only source of every good thing? You get no good thing. However good that other thing looks, it's missed. It's just missed. That's guaranteed. Staying out of waterless cisterns Abandoning steadfast devotion to God to go after anything or anyone else is insanity of the highest order because it absolutely guarantees that you will go from blessed to cursed. We all engage in that insanity at some level, I certainly have. That doesn't make it any less insane. God was talking in this passage to His covenant people and right now God is talking in this passage to His covenant people. The covenant that seals all who trust in Jesus Christ into perfect union with him for all eternity is far, far greater than the covenant that bound Israel and Judah to God in the Old Testament. This covenant, the new covenant, is the completion of that one, the perfection of that one. But even we who are heirs of the new covenant are prone to wander. We're still prone to turn our affections and our attentions away from God to look for well-being in the holes that we dig in the ground. In things that cannot profit. In things that are completely devoid of any good. And so we need to pay close attention to this indictment. The cost of turning our attention and affection away from God to anything that He has made, including people, is a cost that we cannot afford. No created thing can ever separate us who belong to Christ from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But His love is a fiercely protective love. That's the best thing that is true of us, and depending on what we do with it, it can be the worst thing that is true of us. God is a righteously jealous God who has no intention of leaving us to our own devices when we turn away from him to go after mist. He will faithfully put great, big, gaping cracks in our cisterns so that all the water goes out and we find nothing, we find no satisfaction in them. Do you wonder why when you're going after things that are not God, why it usually goes really lousy? That's because God is a loving Father. It would be far better for us if we never dug those holes in the ground in the first place. If with childlike faith we would simply rejoice in the fountain of living waters. At the root of every heart that is devoted to God is steadfast covenant love toward Him because of His steadfast covenant love toward us in Jesus Christ. At the heart of every joyful Christian is gratitude. It is a mindset that is fixed upon the blessedness that comes from God, that we didn't deserve. It is a constant awareness that of the the simple fact that God has already proven His love for us at the cross if He never did one single other thing for any of us that He has saved except send His Son to take our place and die for us that we might be forgiven of sin and given eternal life and granted relationship with Him forever, we would have cause to rejoice every second of every single day of our lives and never to complain about anything. We don't have to look around for another road, another way to get to well-being. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the well-being into which He has already brought us is eternal relationship with the source of every good thing and every perfect gift. I'll close by reading four short verses from Colossians 3 that tell us as a church and as Christians how to stay, how to stay in the place of perfect blessedness and to call each other to stay there too. Colossians 3 verses 14 to 17. You know them. Beyond all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity and and as I read these listen for thanks. Listen for the word thanks. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Dear Father, make us that kind Of people. Make us those kinds of followers of the one true,
0: beautiful, gracious God. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.